Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Job, chapter 1. In the Pew Bibles, it's on page 417. I'll be reading Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, starting in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So, Pastor Matt has been working through the book of James, I think since we've been coming here. It's been at least like four and a half years that he's been going through the book of James every time he gets his turn at the pulpit. So I thought, well, now that I'll be occasionally getting a turn at the pulpit, I'll pick a book to do. So I, I said to, to Pastor Dave, I said, I'm going to start preaching through the book of Job, and I got this. <laughs> right? So... So if you're thinking right now, Job, why Job? Uh, you're in good company. Almost everybody I've related that to has asked me the same question, which is really encouraging, I must say. But I love the book of Job. It's, it's a puzzling book. You know, it's, in, it's intriguing. It, it has that, that what am I missing attraction to it. If you're not familiar with it, I really encourage you to, to take a few days and, and read through it. It's a, it's a great book. So shortly after deciding on this book, on going through the book of Job, I'm reading through commentaries, and one of them says this, says, even the premier scholars of Job wrestle mightily with its frequent rare words, grammatical conundrums, debatable variants, and structural complexities. 
Working in this book is not for the novice or the faint of heart, of which I'm actually both. So, And then there's this from Warren Wearsby's commentary, Be Patient. It's a little short book on Job, Be Patient, from Wearsby. It says this in the introduction. It says, when I decided to write about Job, I said to my wife, I wonder how much suffering we'll have to go through so I can write this book. Little did we realize the trials that God would permit us to experience. So I hadn't shared that one with Kathy. <laughs> Buckle up. Really, I don't think studying Job is necessarily an invitation to suffering. I think that would make God seem a little impulsive, which he's not. So forward we go. It is a perplexing book. Um, for one thing, we don't really know who wrote it. There's a lot of conjecture. Some think that Moses wrote it. Uh, some think that Job himself wrote the book uh, during his post-traumatic period of his life. Uh, others still think that a prophet, perhaps Ezekiel, uh, wrote it. And they think that because whoever wrote it was privy to the heavenly council. Right? They, so that would point to a prophet. Um, the fact is, though, we really don't know. But here's what we do know. It's in the canon of Scripture. So it has something to teach us about God. So the period Job lived is another one of those questions that we really can't absolutely 100% conclusively say that it was this. But... From what I've read, I'm comfortable with saying that, that Job was likely a, a contemporary of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the reasons, and there's more, but one of the reasons that I, that I agree with those commentators is that uh, Job lived to be 180 years old. So we look back, you know how, how time began with, I think, um, Adam lived to be 930, and then we get down to Shem, Noah's son Shem. He was 600 when he died. And then by the time we get to Abraham, uh, Abraham was 175, Isaac was 180, and uh, Jacob was 147. So that puts, I feel like, I'm confident saying that, that Job fits in there, living to 180. There are more, but I won't get into them because it would bore you. So this meant, though, if that's when he lived, that he lived before the Mosaic uh, law was given, but probably after the Abrahamic covenant. Another thing that's questionable that we don't have 100% surety of is that Job lived in the land of us. That we know, because scripture tells us, but where us is, yeah, I like that. <laughs> where us is, isn't clear. We do have information in, in the book of Lamentations, it's mentioned uh, that, that the land of us is in Edom, which is outside of Israel, right? So, Job was not an Israelite himself, probably, but 
he did worship their God. In Edom, uh, in the surrounding area, Mesopotamia and uh, those areas, it was all pagan gods, you know, false pagan gods, and there were a lot of them. Uh, but Job, as it points out in the book, was a worshiper and a God-fearer of the Israelite, the true God. Now the book moves at a, at a peculiar pace. We see first in the first two chapters, it goes at breakneck speed. We get so much information about Job, the heavenly council, and then what befalls Job, his, the calamity, his losses, all in the first two chapters, and it's again, it's in prose. We hit chapter three, and the brakes lock up. And it starts going at a crawl from chapter three to almost the end of the book. In 42, it's poetry. It's all poetry, it's beautiful poetry. But it's slow, we get, we get uh, Job's friends coming in and going through three rounds of, of questioning Job, accusing Job, really. Um, and then finally, at the last, we hear from God. And where we hear from God from, but out of the whirlwind. Right? So that's it's going to be awesome when we get there in about five years. But then at the, at the end of the book, the very last 11 verses, it reverts back to prose, and again it goes wishing by. Right? We get the epilogue that tells us how Job was restored, how, how he uh, interceded for his friends so that they wouldn't be treated according to their folly. But it's 11 verses, and it just lops off, and kind of left hanging. You know, uh, Job is one of the few books that, that neither Martin Luther nor John Calvin did a commentary on. Another really encouraging thought. Uh, but actually, Calvin did preach 100, 159 sermons on the book of Job. Listen to this. He did it over a six-month period, preaching a sermon a day for, for Monday through Friday between, I think, 1544 and 45. How does a person do that and do everything else that, that he was doing at the same time? I know, no social media, but still, that is a lot. A, a, a sermon a day for six months, incredible. I'm not doing that, all right? So I figured it out, though. I did the math, and if I was to, in, at the opportunities that I get to stand up here, uh, if I were to do that, I'd have to preach in Job until I was 102. So not planning on that. It's still going to take a while, just even going through the book. Uh, but before we get started, if you look at your outline there, I don't want you to be thrown by it. Uh, first off, I'm only going to be covering the first five verses of Job, just the, just the description of Job. 
And I'm only going to be getting to the first three points, likely. So I just didn't want you looking at that thing and thinking, looks like we're not getting lunch today. So, so on the book, what do we know about Job? We get a few sentences of his pre-traumatic life and a good description of, of him in the first five verses, which I'll read now. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So we can deduce a lot from that brief passage. He lived in the land of Uz. We've already established that, that it was likely in the land of Edom, outside of Israel that Job was a follower of God, the Israelite God, not a follower of the other pagan gods of his area. Uh, we might surmise that, that Job maybe heard of Yahweh on one of his business travels. Uh, he's, as we'll see, he, he traveled the area, likely traveled the area as a businessman. Now he was blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. And when you see that term blameless, that doesn't mean perfectly sinless. Even Job himself recognizes this. Um, in, a, in a prayer, as it is, that he utters in chapter 13, verse 26, he says to God, for you write bitter things against me and make me Inherit the iniquities of my youth. And then in the next chapter, chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, in an appeal to God for vindication, we read, For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. So Job recognizes he's a sinner. So even God agrees, as we see later in the first chapter in the council meeting with the Satan, as he asks if the adversary has considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So Job is not only a good man, he's the best man. There's none like him on earth. Job is in a league of his own. Job says this in one of his uh, one of his diatribes. 
He says, did not he who made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Those are Job's words in the book talking about his servants, his maidservants and manservants. So you see, this guy Job is somebody who treats everybody the same. He recognizes that the same one that made the servant made Job. Those are the kind of people you'd like to be around. Right? People that that they treat the janitor and the CEO the same. They're just real genuine people. It's a trait that really does draw people to you. I'm reminded of Paul's words in Romans 12 uh, when he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now there are people in our lives that fit this description to some degree. You might be thinking of somebody now, somebody that you look up to, that you admire, that you aspire to be like. You go to them for counsel, you watch them and try to do what they do. Paul told us, as you recall, he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So even when we're watching these people, the goal is to follow them as they follow Christ. Are these people perfect that we admire? No, of course not. We know that. They know that. Paul knew he wasn't perfect. Job knew he wasn't perfect. So how do they arrive at a place where they can be called blameless and upright? Well, it's the lifelong process of sanctification. We don't know very much at all about Job's backstory, but we do know that he did some things in his youth that he considered iniquities. So I picture sanctification, and I'm always thinking in pictures and analogies. You'll hear some today, I apologize later, but I picture some sanctification as a continu continuum of dots, dashes, and lines. We start out in the faith not knowing a lot about it, but doing our best by God's grace to carry on life without sinning. That's our goal. You know, we want to not sin. We want to glorify and honor God. But again, when we're, when we're new Christians, those things, I represent them as like dots. We were able to do that occasionally, you know, not consistently. A dot here, a dot there. Again, rather inconsistent in our walk with the Lord. With the spaces in between those dots representing times when vanity or the pride of life or worldliness has, has crowded out uh, our love for God. It's superseded that. But then another dot and another dot. And before you know it, as life continues, some of those dots, as we continue to grow and mature in the faith, some of those dots start becoming dashes. Right, now I'm picturing Morse code with dots and spaces and dashes. Those dots, those times when we're 
living for the Lord, when we're consciously trying to follow the Lord, uh, trusting in his grace, we see those dots connect to lines. And then there's still dots, more lines. And then we continue on in life. And those dashes become longer lines. Are you picturing, I mean, are you following this, right? They just become longer lines. And the, the dots become fewer and the spaces between it becomes smaller so that as sanctification continues, we're, we're becoming blameless and upright. You know, that's how, that's how Job's described. That's what our, our goal is. And again, this is by God's grace and with his assistance only. We can't do it on our own. You try to do that and you're gonna fall and fail and, and uh, it's not gonna work. So, Job had long lines. That's what we can gather from being blameless and upright and being my servant Job, the one that God is boasting, <laughs> he's boasting to Satan about Job. He's, he's a man that feared God and turned away from evil. This runs hand in hand. Turning away from evil runs hand in hand with, with being blameless and upright. But it is not entirely redundant. We know that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We see that in Proverbs. One commentator says that the fear, that fear of the Lord was that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. Job likely, again, lived in a time prior, uh, prior to the Mosaic Law. But what he did know of God caused him to honor him in humble reverence. Turning away from evil has a couple of sides to it. Uh, one is that Job didn't participate in the evil activities of his day that were around him. And again, remember, he was in a pagan culture where there was no shortage of it of evil. I mean, just because he didn't have the internet doesn't mean that temptations were hard to come by. Temptations are never hard to come by in any age, in any place. But he lived in that pagan land where there was um, child sacrifice, cult prostitution, rampant idol worship. So that was all around him but he turned away from it. He didn't join in. In our world, it seems like we're walking through a minefield of evil. There's no point in me listing those evils because you're already populating a list in your heads. You know what I'm talking about. We live in the same world. We see some of those forms of evil in big bold strokes with a flashing warning sign warning us to turn away. But be careful. Be careful because evil is subtle. Those things that we see now that have the big bold flashing warning signs didn't start out that way. It started out very subtle, 
almost harmlessly. And they became normalized by small increments to the point that now uh, we see evil being called good and good being called evil. Now you know we have an enemy creeping around like a lion seeking whom he might devour. Stick with me for a minute. Maybe you've seen these videos on YouTube or maybe I think there's even been news stories um, oh, look at the cuddly buffalo. It's just 2,000 pounds of fuzzy cuteness. I'm going to get a selfie with it. Have you seen, anybody seen these videos? Then like moments later, the person is learning to fly. Right? It's just, they're gone. I can't think of a better analogy, really, about flirting with sin uh, than, than that. Um, but also this, right, with, with those videos of the people, the foolish people that are going up to these buffalo like they're pets. Well, here's another thing. In those videos, there's like 15 people watching, half of them recording from a safe distance. You maybe hear somebody mutter like, do you think we should, shh, this is going to be epic. Right? Nobody's warning them, telling them to stop, don't do it, that's not a good move. Maybe you should, no, You're just kind of watching for the carnage. I mean, that's what I do when I watch the videos. But that's different. But, but so seriously, right? They're, they're just watching this happen. Well, this is again, though. This is like the world. The world would love to see you fall. As Christians, as representatives of Christ, they'll stand there and why? They're not going to warn you. They're going to invite you. Right? The world is... Is, is not worried about your sanctification. They'd much rather see you fall. But not here, not here, not you guys. You guys look out for each other. We have to look out for each other. You see somebody heading toward a cuddly buffalo, a, the cuddly buffalo of sin, yeah, it's trademark. But you see somebody headed towards sin, head them off at the pass. Don't be quiet. Don't be shy. Don't be worried. Don't be embarrassed. Talk to them. Stop them. Step in between them. So that's what we do. That's what we need to do. Right? Head them off at the pass. So we all fall short of the glory of God, so we're going to sin. We still have this body of flesh. Even, uh, even though we're being sanctified, we're never going to achieve perfect sanctification, this side of glory, until we, as uh, Shakespeare, as Hamlet would say, until we shuffle off this mortal coil. 
that's when we get perfectly sanctified, but it isn't happening here, though we strive, though we try. So what happens then when we do sin? That's the other side of turning from evil, repentance. Repentance. Do you realize what a gift that is? This is incredible that we get that opportunity, that it isn't like a one-shot only, that we don't just get saved until we sin again, and then we have to go through a process to be risked. No. No. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift to repent of the sin that you've already been forgiven of through Christ. What a paradox. What a lovely paradox. So the problem of, of evil is one of the things that we're going to be wrestling with over the next several messages. I'll just put it that way. So moving on in the text. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Job had himself a full quiver. And, you know, certain numbers in Scripture are important. They stand out. Uh, the number seven and three are a couple of them. Uh, seven and three both mean goodness and completeness. So they're not there by accident. Now on top, on top of having a nice round 10 children, says he also possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now that's a lot of livestock. By comparison, the best data that I could come up with is that the largest sheep flock, and I don't see the Wilsons here today, they could test to this probably, but the largest sheep flock in New York State is 1,000 sheep. Job had 7,000. There's 90,000 sheep in New York State. So what? But a thousand sheep, right? So Job's, Job's was 7,000. It's truly amazing. And especially when you consider that that's, those 7,000 sheep that he was having to tend to, we didn't, he didn't have the, the labor-saving technology that we have today, although a lot of, of shepherding and sheep-keeping is probably similar to what it was back then. They didn't have side-by-sides and things like that to run out to the fields and, and electric clippers to shear the sheep. It must have been quite a sight to behold when they were doing all this stuff. Amazing. Okay, now the 3,000 camels. So camels were and are still a beast of burden. Uh, so, so what this means with 3,000 camels and 7,000 sheep is that Job was, was uh, engaged probably in interstate, international commerce. Um, these camels were, in effect, his, his tractor trailers. You know? He had a fleet. So 
This is a wealthy man. Selling and trading with neighboring nations. And again, um, can't say it through scripture, but I can picture how, how Job may have heard about the Israel, about Israel's God in one of these travels, selling his wool and wares and meat and so on. Okay, 500 yoke of oxen. That's a yoke is a pair of oxen. And a pair of oxen can till an acre of ground a day. So 500 yoke could, you know, if everything's going right, could till 500 acres of ground a day. So he must have been an immense landowner too. Everything about the man. You'll see this. You'll see this in Job as you go through it. If you read through it, you'll see what seems like hyperbole. He's the greatest. He's the most. When he suffers, he suffers the worst. Right? Everything about Job has is, is got an exclamation point behind it. So the 500 female donkeys were primarily transportation, but also they'd pull carts. They're a sign of wealth in the Old Testament times. And interestingly, in Scripture, donkeys are, are a sign of a time of peace. When you see horses, that's a time of war. Um, can't assume too much out of that, but, but just found it interesting. So putting all that together, we can understand why Job was considered that uh, this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Wealthy, not just wealthy, the wealthiest. Righteous, N not just righteous, the most righteous. Now next we're told that his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now I thought, and I've heard it read, or I've heard it taught, that what this meant on his day meant that they were having birthday celebrations. I, I bought that. I, I kind of thought that sounded good. Until I started studying on it, and it found something else. Um, and that is that, that in the book, and I'm not going to go into great detail about it, the word day, like on his day, that word day is one word. Birthday is two words, um, and it's used seldom. Uh, one of the places it's used is in Genesis chapter 40, uh, where Pharaoh's having a birthday celebration. Um, he uh, lifts up. He restores the chief cupbearer. You remember this story. He restores the chief cupbearer and hangs the, the chef there, thanks to, thanks to Joseph's interpretation. But, so that's where birthday comes in. So what does it mean? Uh, in, from what I've read, anyway, it likely means that, that they would have feasts, possibly at planting and harvest times, and these feasts would last for one week. Well, that's perfect if you've got seven sons. Each one has his day. So each one on his day would have the feast. 
and they'd invite the sisters along. I'm, no, I'm in no position to say that's definitively what that means, but it makes sense to me. I like that. Um, now, when those feasts concluded, of course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Again, we see God-fearing Job's righteousness on display. Burnt offerings for ten children had to have been quite a process. This practice isn't prescribed um, during the time of the patriarchs. But Job did it out of an abundance of cautions, of caution. Uh, though there might have been with Job, there might have been some anxiety mixed in there too, not wanting to anger God. We'll explore that in future messages. So he did this because Job knew what was in a man's heart. We've already seen that. He knew what was in his heart. He recognized his iniquities. He recognized his sin, and he knows that his children had the same proclivity, right? Just as you and I do. So in these first five, five verses, we get a good snapshot of who this man Job is. Again, Job's the most righteous man, God's servant. He has wealth beyond measure, the greatest of all the people in the East. Coming up in a future message, maybe around um, October, We'll see him lose everything except his wife and his life. His friends turn on him. God seems silent until at the end he's restored and blessed even more abundantly. Now this brings us to the second point. Is Job a type of Christ? That's why the question mark at the end of your notes there is, is Job a type of Christ? I have to confess that while I've read Job a number of times, I hadn't really considered this aspect of it until really studying the book. It's a good question, and it's kind of tricky to answer. First of all, though, let's look at some similarities between Job and Jesus. Job is presented as the most righteous man of his time, blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. None surpassed him in those qualities. There was none like him on earth. Well, you can see the obvious correlation there with Jesus. Jesus was truly and completely righteous. Jesus truly never sinned. Well, we know that Job did. Job lamented his iniquities, and the first thing he did following God's speech to him was fall down and repent. Even so, God called Job my servant. That's seen seldom in scripture. Jesus was also described similarly in Luke 9.25 and a voice came out of the clouds saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. The second thing, Job suffered unparalleled suffering, both personally and with the loss of his livelihood, his possessions, his family. And then, and that all in a single horrific day. And then physically, he suffered with excruciatingly painful illness. 
We have a hard time imagining anyone throughout history that's met such a quick and complete calamity as Job did. You know the story. Think about this and read chapter 3 of Job. You'll be moved to tears. His pain wouldn't allow him even to sleep. He sat in the town dump in burning excrement and garbage, scraping his oozing sores with a piece of broken pottery. Unrecognizable. On top of the mental anguish, anguish of, of losing his children and being bankrupted, his friends turned on him. Accused him of hidden sin. Job said this. Now listen to these words. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently, insolently on the cheek. They massed themselves together against me. So doesn't that sound like it might even have come from one of the Messianic Psalms? That sounds so similar to what Jesus suffered. But through all of that, Job defended his righteousness. We can hardly imagine anyone throughout history having suffered like that. We know people that have suffered. But we know there was one, right? Another suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who endured such harsh treatment from the hands of Roman soldiers, having a crown of thorns pushed onto his head, being flogged mercilessly and then bloodied and beaten almost beyond recognition, bearing the shameful and extremely painful act torture of crucifixion. Friends would desert him. The crowd would mock him, spit on him. We can certainly see the similarities there, but there are some critical differences between the two suffering. See, God would not allow Job's life to be taken. You know, to do so would have created a stalemate in the challenge that was set before him. That's another thing we'll look at in later weeks. It's interesting to see. But he couldn't let Job's life be taken. But Jesus as our perfect substitute, gave his life. Job was unwilling. He wasn't, he wasn't going quietly with the suffering. He was asking questions. He was shaking his fist. He was hurting and angry and wondering. Jesus marched right toward that end intentionally not having his life taken from him, but giving it. Giving it as our perfect substitute. He took that due punishment, the due punishment of our sin, which you know is death, but he took it to the grave with him. Then three days later, he rose, giving us newness of life. Job, Job didn't do that. Job, when Job died, Job died 
for himself. But even when, now we look right at the end of the, end of the book of Job, where his friends, like God really lays into his friends, rebukes them. says, you didn't speak right of me like your friend Job has. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that section. This is in chapter 42, verses 7 through 9. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and, and uh, Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had said them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. See, this is a wonderful thing. You look at this and you see that, that Job is turned into their intercessor. These three friends, these three friends that mocked him, God tells them, give a burnt offering and ask Job to pray for you so that you're not treated according to your folly. How do we get that same kind of treatment? It's through Jesus Christ. He's our intercessor. That's where we go so that we're not treated according to our folly. Amazing. Now, you've heard me talk about biblical theology before, I think. Um, and there's four parts to it. Creation, fall, rest, redemption, and restoration or new creation. You look at the story of Job, and we see this. The wealthiest man. We have creation. The wealthiest man, the greatest person of his time. And then suddenly, in a day... Everything stripped from us, from him, the fall. And then, at the end of the book, we get redemption. And God says, you didn't speak right of me, but my servant Job has. And then we get restoration, new creation, with Job getting double what he, what he had before in livestock, same amount of children back. So pretty amazing that we see that there. Um, but his restoration was temporal, right? He got livestock that was going to die. He got, he was going to die himself, Job. So that restoration was, was temporal. It was only here. But the restoration that we get from Jesus Christ, eternal. That restoration, that new creation we can look forward to beyond this life because you're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. We're going to have a hard time. 
in this life, but Jesus' restoration is eternal. So I want to move on now to, anyway, first of all, to tidy this up a little bit. I can't, and not a lot, <laughs> but I can't. I can't categorically say that Job is technically a type of Jesus Christ. We do see similarities there. And any time that the Old Testament can bring your mind around to Christ, you know there's a scarlet thread that runs all through the Bible, and it's Jesus' blood. It's Jesus Christ. You see him from Genesis to Revelation. So don't, don't discount that. Right? So even if we can't say that Job is actually a type of Jesus Christ, we can say that he foreshadows him. Right? Remember again what information Job had of God. It was very limited. But God had Job. So this is, a, this is the third point and final point. Um, and, and it's the theme, the theme of the book. Now I'm going to do this because, again, it's going to take us a long time to get all the way through the book of Job. So I'd like to let us look at the box top, uh, the big picture. There's two very important points that we need to remember to begin with, though. First of all is that reading through the book, we're privy to information that Job's not privy to. We get to see, read about the, the heavenly council when, when the Satan meets with God. It's quite a, quite a thing, and, and Job never, never, never in the whole book gets that perspective. We don't see that. That's one of those things in the epilogue, you know, at the very end where it's like, no, another chapter, please. And we'd like to say, okay, and so let me tell you what, what happened here, Job. No, we don't get that. But we get to see the whole, the whole picture. The second thing is, I've alluded to it already, is that we have the perspective of the cross. We get to read the New Testament and then interpret the Old Testament through it. We get to see things that we didn't see. The book of Job could make little sense if it weren't for the cross, if it weren't for Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, there's an Old Testament scholar that said, and, he, and he's just an Old Testament scholar, but just reading the Old Testament perspective in Job makes it, the record of an unanswered agony. Ah. But we have the cross. We have Jesus Christ uh, to put through, that lens to look at things through. Praise God for that, right? So if you've read Job outside of your regular Bible reading, you know, when you just come to it and you read it, if you have read Job, opened up the book and intentionally read Job, there's a good chance that it's because it was during a time where you were going through suffering. You or a loved one was, was having a difficult time in life. So you turn to Job because what do you know about Job? Well, there's a guy that suffered. Yeah, Job suffered. So he's going to be able to help me. That book's going to be able to help me 
with my suffering. You know, I look out at you all, and I do love this perspective. I look out at you all, people that I love, and I know that all of you adults and some of you young people have suffered. You maybe have turned to Job for the reason of looking for some solace and comfort. Some of you might be suffering now. You know, the, the commentator, Christopher Ash, uh, he's done a great commentary on Job. He said this, he says, every pastor knows that behind most front doors there lies pain, often hidden, sometimes long and drawn out, sometimes very deep. So it makes sense anyway that we would turn to Job. After all, Job and suffering are synonymous. If any book in scripture can guide us, help us understand what we're going through, why bad things happen to good people, it should be the book of Job. So you read through it. You go through all 42 chapters. And you're looking for some help, understanding your circumstances. But the comfort you're seeking doesn't come. So you read through the book again thinking, I must have missed something. There's got to be a secret key in this book that tells me why bad things happen to good people and why I'm going through this suffering right now. And we do it. We look through it again. And honestly, we just don't find it. So you pick out a handful of verses. This is what we do. We pick out a handful of verses, the underlined and the highlighted ones, the naked from my, uh, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or uh, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? We remember those verses, and they're great verses, and they're important verses, and they happened in the first two chapters of Job. Get down in the middle of the book and see what Job is saying. It's not quite the same thing. So you take those verses, and you squeeze them for every bit of juice to make lemonade out of that truckload of lemons that's been dumped on you, and you hold on to them. But... You wanted, you wanted more from Job. Those verses, again, they show up in the first two chapters. Again, we get to the middle of the book, or even not even very far into it, and you start realizing that Job is beginning to sound, he's, he's beginning to sound like you. He's asking the same questions about why that you are. Job is agonizingly honest about how flummoxed he is about his plummet of life. You know, as we read his, di his diatribes against God, accusing God, we start to get angry with Job, too. I think that's common. But we forget. we got to remember what this guy went through in a day. 
And then the suffering, long-range suffering. Oh. So Job's saying, Lord, this isn't, this isn't how the world is supposed to work. And that's what we say too, right? When we're in suffering sometimes, this is not fair. I don't deserve this. And then, when God finally does answer, he doesn't really answer the questions you and I and Job have. You know, it kind of reminds me of Jesus when people would ask him questions, and then you're reading in Scripture, and you're reading the question, and then you read the answer, and you're going like, no, you, no that's, not, that's not what he asked. You didn't answer his question, Jesus. No, he didn't. He answered a more important question, one that was on the heart, one that was more important for this person's soul. Maybe that's what's happening when God answers Job, right? So <laughs> this is another Another little divergence, so please stick with me. Um, you, you might recently have seen in the news, it's just in, been in this, like this past week, that um, there was a prominent study about Alzheimer's research that was done in 2006. And it was groundbreaking. Right? It showed that, I won't go into the detail about it, but it, it it was something that from that point on, it, it made it to all the medical journals. It made it worldwide so that from that point on in 2006, just about every dollar of Alzheimer's research went through this. Every study that was done was based, every study and every bit of research was based on that 2006 study. There's been precious little ground made in the treatment of Alzheimer's in that 16-year period. Well, early this year, a researcher looked at the data and images from that 2006 study. He found something didn't look right. And he discovered that the images had been manipulated and the data had been manipulated in that 2006 study because they were seeking money for, uh, or seeking for a, a medication to be approved that was gonna be a big payday. So they altered all those studies for 16 years. The consequence to Alzheimer's research is devastating. But, but why did it take 16 years for this to be discovered? It just reminds me now, countless hours of expensive research was conducted with little or no positive results. They were looking for cures for a terrible condition. Many of you familiar with it. And for 16 years, it never occurred to them 
that they might not be getting the answers they wanted because they were starting in the wrong place. Is it possible, is it possible that we do something similar when we approach the book of Job? We're often in a, a desperate place looking for some comfort, some solace, some way to reconcile what's happening to us. That's not a wrong thing to do, but we have to allow the text God has given us to speak in his voice. If we're starting with a conclusion in mind, and we can do that, if we're starting with a conclusion in mind, we manipulate the data. We Photoshop the images to get to the place that we want it to be, but we look at Job again, and we ask the questions on the front end, and we're left hanging on the back end, well, that doesn't mean God's not got something to teach through the book of Job. I mean, it is in the canon, right? For time's sake, I'm going to fast forward here. You know, we know Scripture tells us that that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts higher than our thoughts, but we still have this tendency to domesticate God. He's kind enough, gracious enough to put in words in our Bibles, language that we can understand, arms, legs, laughter, tears, all these things. And so we maybe bring God down to our level a little bit more than we ought to. But God in his speeches, in his speech in Job, where he's not seemingly answering the questions that Job had, what he's doing is saying, no, I'm so much bigger than you understand. I'm so much bigger, so much other than you. He's not part of his creation. He's got perfect, perfect wisdom. Everything that he does is perfect. We question, we rail, we wonder, and we're left hanging sometimes. But here's the big takeaway. What did Job have? What did Job have when God took everything but his life away from him? He had God. He had God. That's so much bigger. That's so much better than any other thing, any physical thing in the world. These temporal things that we desire, that we hold on to, that we covet. No. We have God by his grace. book of Job might not provide the clear answer to why we suffer, but it most definitely is one that prepares us for suffering when it comes. Because it shows us again how the magnitude of God, how large he is, and that that's the God that's so big, so immense, so unfathomable because we have these little finite minds But that's the God who's got you. 
that's the God who's got Job. Hmm. We have God by grace through faith, thanks to the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, immovably, lovingly, eternally, he's got you. Because of that, you have him. When your grip weakens, like Job's grip weakened, his never does. It never will. We have God, and that's enough. Amen?